I want to start the talk tonight uh, with a quotation that Carol used last night in her talk when the Buddha said, This mind is luminous, but it is colored by visiting defilements. The uninstructed ordinary person does not understand this, so for them there is no cultivation of the mind. So there's this image that in our nature there is this pure and luminous mind, or you could say awareness, that's the foundation for all of us. It gets colored or covered over or stained by these defilements that visit it and obscure it, but it's still there underneath all the time. Ordinary people don't understand this because they dwell so much of the time in the obscurations, and so they don't bother cultivating the mind to uncover this brilliant original nature. And then the Buddha goes on, This mind is luminous and it is free of visiting defilements. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is, so for them there is cultivation of the mind. When we gain some conviction that our original nature is pure and undefiled, it gives us the motivation to rediscover that again and again, to open it up so that it becomes more and more our living experience. So what stands between us and the manifestation of this pure mind are these visiting defilements. And the work of cultivation is about understanding their effects and how to release them. That's really what I'd like to talk about tonight. These forms are many. There are many such visitors, just a very partial list. Craving, lust, anger, hatred, aggression, sadness, despair, loneliness, fear, anxiety, terror, shame, jealousy, confusion, guilt, list could go on and on. In Mahayana Buddhism, it's said that there are 84,000 of these afflictive emotions. (laughs) But that was invented about 2,300 years ago when life was much simpler. (laughs) So I think today there must be at least 168,000 of them. Of course, when the underlying luminous mind is exposed and touched, as it unfolds, it has the capacity to bring forth all the beautiful states of mind too. So qualities like love and compassion, joy, wisdom, generosity, non-clinging, renunciation, calm, equanimity, mindfulness, all of these are implicit you could say dormant, and just waiting to be activated within this pure and luminous mind that is our basic nature. And I I trust that there are at least 84,000 of these also. So that's the, the strength of our nature. And it is really in the activation of these beautiful qualities of mind that we develop the path. So when the Buddha says, for the noble disciple, there is cultivation of the mind, It means learning to release or liberate the obscuring qualities, the difficult qualities, thereby exposing the pure nature underneath, which then manifests in all the beautiful qualities. This is really the work that we're engaged in here. When I first started practice, I was in my mid-20s, and I was very drawn by the idea of enlightenment. Back then, the books that were available were largely from the Zen tradition, And they talked about these old Chinese and Japanese masters who had become enlightened. And that was very appealing to me because it was a way out of my my emotional problems. I thought, gee, you know, being lovelorn, being insecure, being lonely, all I have to do is get enlightened and all that stuff will go away. So enlightenment was so appealing because it was going to rid me of my emotional problems. That's really what generated my interest in the path in the first place. But as I think of the path now, I have a different take on it. Now I think that it's not possible to get enlightened until we've kind of resolved our emotional misunderstandings and cleared up and liberated those forces. Then enlightenment can perhaps visit us. But we need to do this work first. There's no magic 
bullet that's going to come along in our practice and solve these conundrums for us. So fortunately we don't need that. We can use our own native intelligence to start to relate to these forces of mind and find out how to become free in the middle of them. As Rodney said, uh, I think it was in his instructions yesterday morning, it's really about inviting these states to come, not trying to shy away from them or hide from them or avoid them because we have the capacity to know them and to let them be. This is from Pema Chodron. In all kinds of situations, we can find out what is true simply by studying ourselves in every nook and cranny, in every black hole and bright spot, whether it's murky, creepy, grisly, splendid, spooky, frightening, joyful, inspiring, peaceful, or wrathful. We can just look at the whole thing. There is a lot of encouragement to do this, and meditation gives us the method. Because we actually have the capacity to make peace with this emotional realm, these states that are the source of a lot of our suffering in day-to-day life as well as in retreat, we do have the potential to make peace with this. I kind of like to think of this process as becoming enlightened before we're enlightened. Because as we understand this whole level of the heart and mind, we open to a great deal of inner freedom. It's not that we have to make any of these states go away. For most of us, they will not go away for a long time, completely. They, were, they are not uprooted until very advanced stages of development. But nonetheless, we can come to harmony with them through understanding. So even though the first impulse of our mind is to get rid of them, it's not actually what works because it's simply not possible at our level. They don't go away immediately. And that's why we have the opportunity, and it's a great uh, situation for learning, to learn to relate to them directly. Again from Pema Chodron. The basic obstacle is that we don't like the way reality is now and therefore wish it would go away fast. But what we find as practitioners is that nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. If we run a hundred miles an hour to the other end of the continent in order to get away from the obstacle, we find the very same problem waiting for us when we arrive. So tonight I want to explore this whole area of the difficult states of mind, the, the source of most of our suffering. And I want to just ground it in uh, the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness. This is an area covered by what's called the third foundation of mindfulness. Breath and body are included in the first foundation. And the area we're looking at tonight is important enough that it has its own foundation, the foundation called citta. We mentioned this word a few times. Citta can be translated by either heart or mind. It has both uh, affective and cognitive qualities. So when we say citta, we always mean both. In the West, we tend to split heart and mind, but in the Buddha's teaching, uh, they didn't. One teacher said that the best translation for citta is psyche. I think that's a nice way to think of it. This is in the realm of our psyche. If you ask a person in Thailand where their mind is, they'll point here to the center of their chest. If you ask someone in the West, you know, 99 out of 100 will certainly point to the head. But in Asia, it's assumed that the heart, mind are located here in the chest. There's a funny story about this. You all have probably tuned into the fact that there's a lot of research today in the field of neuroscience where through rigorous scientific method, researchers are uh, proving the benefits of meditation in mind and body. One of the foremost scientists in this area is a fellow from the University of Wisconsin at Madison named Richie Davidson, who's a meditator here, by the way. And he's one of the people who pioneered the studies of uh, 
Tibetan monks who were adepts at meditation who were put into functional MRI machines and their brains mapped as they went into deep states of, of meditation, either of absorption or generating strong feelings of compassion. So a lot of the pioneering work was done by Dr. Davidson. He has been consulting with the Dalai Lama for many years now. They've uh, brought the Dalai Lama uh, to this country to meet with scientists. Scientists have traveled to Dharamsala, where His Holiness lives, and met with him there. So on one trip to Dharamsala, Richie decided to take his, some of his test equipment and demonstrate it to the Dalai Lama and to other monks there. So they couldn't ship the whole MRI machine. That was a little too heavy. So what they took was this, um, this cap, which is basically a, a leather shell that has strips of leather running down it that fits over the top of someone's head. And along the leather strips of the cap are like 20 or 30 electrodes. So when the cap is placed on the subject's head, the electrodes come into contact with the scalp. Then there are cables running from the cap to a computer and they detect brain activity by the response at the electrodes, the response of uh, brain waves measured on the computer and graphed as they're doing it. In fact, they ran experiments here a couple of years ago on yogis after a three-month retreat and found very impressive results, by the way. So come to a three-month retreat. (laughs) That really works. We're not sure about nine days yet. but. So they took this apparatus and they were demonstrating it for the Dalai Lama and there were about 500 monks in this big hall in Dharamsala. So they had somebody put on the cap and they showed how it connected to the computer and then through a translator they were explaining how the experiments work. And they finished explaining and the translator finished the translation and 500 Tibetan monks just broke up laughing. <laughs> they thought the whole thing was absolutely hilarious. And Richie said that he assumed they were laughing because the cap looked so silly, which it does. But no, they they asked them what they were laughing about. What they thought was so hilarious was that people would try to study the mind and the effect of meditation by going to the brain. Because everybody knows that the mind is located here in the center of the chest. So that's the next challenge. How do we measure the mind at the center of the chest? So I don't have the answer for that. So this is the area of citta, of heart and mind, cognition and affect, all experienced through this third foundation. We'll talk more as the retreat goes on about working with the beautiful states of mind. So uh, don't be impatient that we're just going to give you dukkha, dukkha, dukkha the whole retreat. Usually we start with that and warm up to the beautiful states. So we'll get there. So there are two important shifts that we need to make in order to feel relaxed and free with difficult emotions that visit us. The first of these is that we need to have an attitude shift. We need to move from an attitude of resisting and judging these forces to one of acceptance and allowing So that's the first change that comes. The second, as we open in this uh, more allowing way and shine the light of awareness on them, we develop a greater understanding of how they work. We start to see that all these difficult states of mind have their own mechanisms. They work in particular ways, and because we all have the whole range of human emotions, they seem to work in pretty much the same ways for all of us. So as we study this, we're really learning about our mental nature, which is the same as all human mental nature, and we learn about the nature of these obscurations. As we start to study them, we see how they're put together. We see they all have a process of arising, persisting for a while, and then passing away. We start to have great uh, conviction or faith in their temporary nature. None of them are permanent or very long-lasting. And we start to see that as they manifest their nature, they come in just like weather systems, just like this warm breeze that came in today, lasts for a while, and is temporary, as you probably had guessed. So also all the moods that come in 
arise, last for a while, and pass away. When we can start to understand them just as weather systems, we don't have to own them. They're not particularly yours or mine. They're just these states, and we become familiar with their own nature. And as we do that, we start to see their essential impersonality. We don't have to own them. We don't have to identify with them. They're present. They come. They go. So this is the operation of wisdom. So one of the shifts is just of greater openness. The second is greater understanding through the wisdom factor. So in learning about these states, the first thing that's really helpful is to know what we're feeling when we're feeling it. It's not often taught in this culture. I grew up very uh, untrained in this area. So when I came into meditation and I found that one could actually observe the mind and the kinds of moods that came through, for me it was like discovering a new world. There was a whole landscape I hadn't known anything about. It was like a, a, my wife taught a friend of ours who's, I think, 63 years old. She taught her last year to snorkel. This woman had never snorkeled before. They were in warm waters together. And our friend came up from her first time of snorkeling and said what most people do when they have had their first snorkel. Wow, there's a whole world under there I never knew existed. Because it is amazing, isn't it, if you start to see that. So that's the way it is looking into our mind. There's a whole world of beautiful states and difficult states that live and breathe and move within us. But until we've closely looked and examined, we don't sort of know that landscape and terrain. So it's a very interesting exploration. Kids, I think, have a tremendous potential for learning this early. One of our Sangha members at at Spirit Rock runs a preschool. And because it's the Bay Area, it turned out that all the parents of the kids in her preschool were supportive of meditation might not happen everywhere, but it happened for her. So she has about 20 kids who are aged 3 to 5 in this preschool, and because the parents were into it, she's basically structured it as Dharma training for these children. So she has them from 9 to 1, five days a week. She tells them stories from spiritual sources like the Jataka tales, early lives of the Buddha, other traditions that have clear spiritual messages. She teaches them yoga asanas, where she uses the animal poses and makes stories about what the animals are doing while the kids are in the yoga poses. And she teaches them to meditate and takes them into a meditation room and encourages them to sit. And she has these three- to five-year-olds quiet, sitting quietly for 30 minutes at a time because they've so soaked up kind of the vibe of the stories and the movements and everything else. It's an extraordinary thing that she's doing. So one of the ways that she gets them into this meditative state is that she has them do yoga postures and they end up in a lying down posture at the end. I think it's Shivasana. And as they lie down, see, they they can't relate to words like calm and awareness. That's not in their vocabulary, but they relate really well to images. So she said, "As as you settle down into the floor... Imagine that you're just falling into a pool of water and then you're becoming the pool of water. And within this pool of water, all the fishes swim and the fishes are your emotions. You can have a happy fish swim through your water. You can have a mad fish swim through your water. A sad fish can come. A friendly fish can come. All the fish can come and swim through your water. Just lie down and open up the water and let all the fish come. So one five-year-old boy got up from this exercise and he said, I could let all my fish come except the mad fish. (laughs) And she said, well, why couldn't you let the mad fish come? And he said, well, when you don't know that you're the water, the mad fish makes you do things that hurt other people. When you don't know you're this pure, luminous mind, in which everything moves, the mad fish makes you do things. It's amazing. The kids have this kind of intuitive understanding available, and we can learn it. We can learn it also. 
But for me, it wasn't, it wasn't so easy. It wasn't so apparent in the beginning. I'll give you a little example. I was doing a long meditation retreat sitting in this hall in the early years of my practice. And I'd been settled in for about two weeks, so I was, I was pretty present and pretty concentrated. The morning sitting had ended, I think it was 9.15, and I went out the back door to go for walking down on the grass that's below the parking lot. And I felt I was being very mindful as I left the hall. I was with every step, slowly lifting and placing and lifting and placing. I got out the back door and I looked down to my walking area and there was somebody on my walking path. (laughs) And I'd been walking in that path every walking period for two weeks. And I look out there and I go, how would somebody walk in my walking path? I've been there every period. Haven't they been observant? And then I was just very mindfully still walking, lifting and placing and lifting and placing. I get a little closer and I think, are they trying to play head games with me? (laughs) You know, did I cut in front of them in breakfast this morning or something? And lifting and placing. And so all this time I was kind of getting steamed that somebody was in my walking place. But I walked down there and I found another stretch of grass not far away. And to my surprise, it worked just as well. So I was doing my walking. I was about 30 minutes in. And I was still dwelling on this guy who was in my walking path. And all of a sudden, I realized I'm angry. I hadn't picked up on it. I I thought I was being really mindful by being with the lifting and the placing. And I was missing the main thing that was happening to me. This is what we mean by delusion. When I say delusion is not knowing what's happening to us, I was in a state of delusion. I thought I was mindful, but I didn't even know what I was feeling, and it was the main thing that was going on. When I didn't know what I was feeling, I was completely caught up in it. I believed in my story, that it was my walking path, and that guy shouldn't be there, and I was right and they were wrong. And as I was telling myself this story over and over again, what happened is my mind just kept going back to that person. And I might still be with my feet, but I wasn't really with what was happening. So I was caught. I was completely identified. I believed in the story. When I realized I was angry, it was like a light bulb went on in my mind. Oh, anger. Then, instead of pointing all my attention at the other person, I could turn the attention to my inner experience. Oh, there's anger here. Then I had a possibility of release. Because I knew how to meditate with anger. I knew how to feel it in the body. I knew how to feel it in the mind. I knew to look for the kinds of thoughts that were going on. But until I recognized it, I couldn't even do that meditative work. I was just completely glued to it. So this is what these um, hindering energies tend to do. We think we're being mindful, but they slip in under the radar. Boom, they establish themselves. They take us over. They point us in some other direction with anger toward the person that we're annoyed about. And we really lose touch with what's going on inside. So the first step, and it's really the the most important step, is to turn that attention back to ourselves and say, oh, what I'm feeling now is anger or, you know, whatever else it is. So be aware of this with these hindering qualities. They're quite tricky They seduce us in a different direction, away from mindfulness. But if we can just remember first to recognize they're there, ah, mindfulness is reestablished, delusion is dispelled a little bit, and we can start to work, we can start to relate. So there are um, a few states of mind that I want to talk about specifically tonight. And there are four big ones that I see again and again in my practice and in meditators that I work with that I want to start by talking a little about. One of the curious things about these difficult states of mind, the unwholesome states, is they're bound up with time. Anytime you're caught in one of these hindering energies, you are also caught in the web of time. Wholesome states don't have this quality. Just in a moment, very freshly, we can feel love or joy 
or compassion or generosity, not dependent on past or future. But when the hindering energies are there, we're locked somewhere in past or future with them. So this is one of the main, let's say, axes on on which these hindering energies unfold. The other axis they unfold in is pleasure and pain. You know, we've talked about how this, this human life is such an unpredictable mix of the pleasant and the unpleasant. And our, you could say, our tendency to lose our balance is largely due to that. We don't know which is going to come. We don't know quite how to, how to rest in the middle. So I want to suggest that the four main obstructing energies come from this combination of pleasure and pain mapped against past and future. So I'll ask you to investigate a little bit with me and I'll see if we can draw the, the answers to these from, from you. So let's say we'll, we'll start with one quadrant, which is um, past pleasure. So let's say there was a pleasurable experience in the past, but it's no longer here. That's what it means by it was pleasurable in the past, but it's not in the present. What's the emotion that attends upon that kind of event? There was past pleasure, but it is no longer. What do you feel? Want it? So there's, there's some kind of craving, and that's kind of the projection into the future. Sadness, isn't it? Kind of, it was here, it was beautiful, I've lost it, and that engenders sadness. Then craving can come toward the future, but that's kind of a different movement into a different quadrant. So we could say that sadness is a common response, and this is a strong part of human experience, to pleasurable things that were in the past. Okay, let's take an unpleasant experience from the past, and I want to make one particularity around it connected to another person. What was it? Anger. Anger arises if we remember something that somebody did to us that was unpleasant in the past. And that's another very strong human experience. Okay, pleasant in the future. We've actually already had that topic. That's craving, isn't it, or desire. When we think about something pleasant that could happen in the future, that sparks desire. And what about unpleasant in the future? Fear. So I want to suggest that these are the main four dominant kinds of uh, hindrances that come to us. Sadness, anger, desire, and fear. So these are four that I want to touch on this evening. There are many others. This is by no means exclusive, and you'll find different variations of these. One other variation I want to touch on is that when the anger is directed against ourselves, it takes a particular form of self-judgment. It's another strong one for meditators in retreat. And then to, to this group, I want to add one other that I'll talk about toward the end, and that is the factor of doubt. I want to cover that one tonight also. So each of these, let's talk about the main four for a minute. Each of these four, which can come and visit us frequently in daily life or in meditation retreat, has got three main components that I would suggest to you as a meditator, it's very, very helpful to investigate and explore. The first is every one of these has a mood that is just a quality of mind. There's a a mental tone, a kind of coloring that comes into the mind, an atmosphere or a climate, you could say, that is connected with that particular emotion. So there's a mood to sadness, there's a different mood to fear or desire, and of course there's a different climate for happiness and joy and compassion and so on. So the first thing is that kind of tone or coloring that each emotion brings in the mind. The second thing is, if it is strong, it will have a definite expression in the body. Any strong emotion will have an impact in the body, and you'll be able to feel that through body sensations. The third piece is that it engenders a certain kind of thought. 
So pay attention to the kinds of thoughts that come with the emotion. Sometimes thoughts will trigger an emotion, but once the emotion's underway, it will spin off particular kinds of thoughts. And there's one thought pattern in particular with each emotion that's especially binding. It's like the glue of the emotion, of the negative emotion, is a story about the situation, about ourselves, about other people. And that story locks the emotion in as long as we believe in it. It sustains it. And without the story, which is a a belief about the way things are, without that belief, the emotion would just crumble. So in bringing mindfulness to this area of emotions, we want to look at the tone of the emotion, the coloring in the mind, the way it's expressing in the body, and then the story or belief that we have that holds the situation together. So uh, I'll, t- I'll start and talk about this force of desire. This is a movement of mind that wants to bring about a pleasurable experience. It comes often in retreat. In the beginning of retreats, it's very often for things outside, things at home that we've left behind. could be seeing a certain person, being in a comfortable place, having a particular food, going out for a restaurant or a movie or something like that. Those images come often in the beginning of a retreat, that force of desire. As you examine this quality, and it will probably come a few more times before the retreat ends, you'll have an experience to do the lab work, take a look at what that feels like, the force of desire. Now, I've noticed for myself that I often will bring it in at a time in retreat when things just seem a little dull or boring. This setting is pretty austere. You've given up, you know, all the fun things in order to be here. And, um, you know, the weather isn't particularly uplifting some days. The simplicity of life can feel a little bit um, grim sometimes. And when I'm in the middle of that state, kind of feeling like, am I in a desert here or what? Then I might want to bring in some fantasy or the mind gets seduced by some fantasy about life outside. And I might imagine, you know, being in a warm climate or swimming somewhere, going out for a nice meal. So notice the effect of that kind of fantasy. There's a kind of um, enjoyment that comes from it. It's like a substitute reality for a short while. There's something pleasurable in our environment that wasn't here a moment ago. And I think that's part of what desire is meant to do. Bring us the image of something pleasant when we're, we're feeling lacking. But notice something else about the quality of desire. Is it satisfying to have that image? For me, there's always something bittersweet about it because it's a beautiful thing I'm thinking about, but I'm also very aware I ain't got it. I'd like to have it in the future, but right now I don't have it. And so there's that longing part that's kind of the intrinsic frustration with the desire fantasy. So start to tune into that quality of unfulfillment that's intrinsic to the force of desire. This came through really clearly to me on a retreat a few years ago. Carol and I were teaching in in Italy, which was a lot of fun because um, whatever I had heard about Italian people uh, was borne out at the retreat. (laughs) I I loved working with the Italian yogis. They They had a warmth and a kind of fluency with their emotions that I, I didn't have growing up. And I, I loved talking with them because they were, they were very open. Um, the retreat f- form was slightly different. We were holding it at a, a convent in the north of Italy. And when we came in, we had to ask the cooks to please take the carafes of red wine off the dinner table. <laughs> because they were prepared to put that out at, at uh, lunch and, and dinner. Um, Silence was not held quite the same way 
as it is here, because Italians are good talkers. And there was an espresso machine right outside the meditation (laughs) hall. So there were frequent hits of caffeine during the day. Kept things energized. So in the first few days of the retreat, we were having the interviews, and a, a young man came in. We were talking through an interpreter. And he said he was having a hard time getting settled into the retreat. And I said, well, what's the problem? He said, I don't really feel like being here. And I said, well, why not? What's wrong? He said, well, this is our vacation time. It was August. And he said, I had two choices. Some friends invited me to go on a vacation to the Caribbean with them, or I could come on this meditation retreat. And I said, why did you come here? He said, because all the tickets to the Caribbean were sold out. So we were his second choice. And it looked pretty austere compared to Caribbean beaches and the the warm waters and being with his friends. And he said he just wasn't getting into being here. But I worked with him to see if maybe the problem was not the absence of the Caribbean, but the presence of the wanting. Because wanting has this unfulfilling quality, when we dwell in it, we feel unsatisfied. Wherever we are, we'll feel unsatisfied if we're wanting something else. So I suggested, what would happen if you just didn't think about the Caribbean for a while and just were in the present moment? How would that be? And he came back a few days later. He had kind of let go of the Caribbean fantasies, and he had really settled into being in the retreat, and then it was no problem. He settled in, and the meditation unfolded beautifully. Once we settle into the retreat, the desire force tends to express itself in relation to retreat life. So the things that we start to want are peaceful sittings, concentration, special insights, feelings of expansiveness, uh, a, a moving quality of loving kindness. Those are a little harder to pick out because they're so embedded within our environment. But start to tune in that they have the same dissatisfying nature and that is only when we can kind of release them that we can fully settle back into the moment uh, the way that it is. So when desire is present, notice how the force feels in the mind. I find there's a kind of leaning forward, kind of toppling into the future to make the next moment the way that I want it to be. And I start to feel that body tension, just a strain in my body is I'm leaning after something I can't quite get. So the tone in the mind, the sensation in the body, the thoughts that come typically about future, and the story of desire, as I look within, something like, I would be happy if only I had that. So it's like a promise of future happiness if we could attain that. You take that storyline out, the force of the fantasy really goes away. So play with that. When anger is present, we find ourselves dwelling on the incident from the past that caused it. Take a look inside. The the mental quality of anger is kind of fiery or burning or hot. And you feel inside the body, and it's similar. There's usually a, a constriction, contraction. There's often quite a lot of energy with anger but it feels like there's a lot of friction in it, as though it's burning. Sometimes heat comes strongly into the body with anger. Notice what kinds of thoughts come. Probably quite similar to when I was looking at my walking path being occupied, thoughts of blaming. And so we run the thoughts over and over, blaming the other person, justifying ourselves. Those are the kinds of thoughts that come. So the storyline, for me, feels something like, and you might find variations on this storyline, and this is not like fixed um, in doctrine, but take a look and see what the storyline is for you. For me, the storyline is something like, I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> and that's, that's the basic belief that sustains anger. And if you take that belief away, the anger just crumples. This is why you know, it's so helpful to have dialogue. So, also take a look in anger 
at the feeling in your own experience when anger is present. And if you look within, there's this burning, there's this friction, there's this fiery quality. It's very unpleasant. It's a very unpleasant emotion to feel. So there's a saying in the tradition that anger is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will get sick. (laughs) Doesn't work so well. One of the most convincing things for me to encourage me to let go of the blaming thoughts was the realization that I was the one who had the poison. You know, especially in an environment like this, we may be angry at somebody here, we may be angry at someone at home, but we're the ones who are suffering and they're going about their way very happily, quite unaware of the poison that we intended for them. Another image from our tradition is um, anger is like picking up a hot coal to throw at someone. But before we can throw it, we have to pick it up and then we get burned. So I found it very, very helpful in anger to feel the suffering that the state brings to me. Now, that encourages me often to let go of these blaming thoughts because the blaming thoughts keep adding fuel to that fire. Every time I think another blaming thought, the fuel gets thrown on and the fire gets higher. So it encourages me not to think those thoughts anymore. And when I stop thinking those thoughts, the fire starts to die down. But just stopping to think those thoughts is kind of an act of faith. Because at first I thought, oh, well, if I don't think those thoughts then I will be condoning that person's action. I'll be saying, oh, what that person did was fine. And it may not be fine. You know, it could be accurate that you were right and they were wrong. That could be, you know, a kind of clear perception because awful things happen in the world to very innocent people. These things happen. I mean, there's there's war and there's torture going on in, in so many countries around the world. In our own culture, there's individual violence and domestic violence, racism, assault, and all kinds of injustice taking place that are wrong, unskillful acts. The question is, even if we perceive that clearly, do we need to keep telling ourselves that story? Once we've understood that someone did something that was unskillful and perhaps motivated by ill will or malice, Do we need to keep telling that story, thereby fueling the anger? Or is it possible to hold it with the understanding that, yes, that was unskillful on their part, but we don't need to consume ourselves with anger? The Dalai Lama tells this story of a monk that he used to know in Tibet, The Dalai Lama left Tibet in 1959 after almost 10 years of uh, Chinese occupation and fled to India. This monk stayed in Tibet, was not able to leave at that time, and was eventually imprisoned by the Chinese government for about 20 years. And then finally he got out and escaped to India and met the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. So the Dalai Lama received the monk and they had a conversation because the Dalai Lama makes an effort to meet people who have escaped from Tibet. So they were talking about the monk's time in in prison. And uh, the Dalai Lama uh, asked him how his treatment had been. And the monk said that he had been in danger. And the Dalai Lama said, yes, of course, you must have been very worried about uh, being tortured or or even killed. And the monk said, "I, I was tortured. Um, But that's not what I meant by being in danger. I meant I was in danger of being angry. But I wasn't. The Dalai Lama said after that, he had to conclude that this monk was a very developed practitioner. And this is an extraordinary capacity. It's not a capacity I have. But to me, it's very inspiring to know that this is even part of our human potential to have that kind of mistreatment and to be able to hold it without moving into anger. 
because anger doesn't often accomplish a lot for ourselves. There is a strength in it that we may be able to draw on and to use, but we have to be careful of being uh, burned, of burning ourselves in the process. One form of anger is self-judgment. And this is something that often comes into people's minds as they enter into the silence. Maybe because we're away from social contact, we start to feel the ways that we're very hard and judgmental on ourselves. With self-judgment, most helpful to be able to identify the kinds of thoughts, develop a label for the thoughts as being judging. Notice the impact of that on our mood. Feel the sense, the kind of heaviness and the oppression that comes from self-judgment and feel the, the pain and the suffering of it. Something that really helps to um, relate skillfully with this is a sense of compassion for ourselves. When we feel the, the hurt that we bring to ourselves through this judging tendency, let ourselves feel that directly, then some compassion can come in for ourselves. One of the other um, strong things we have to deal with in life is a sense of sadness. We've all had a lot of disappointments in life. There have been things that we hoped would turn out that didn't, things that we hoped would turn out better than they have. With sadness, often I think we're afraid to open to that feeling because there may be a belief, if I open to this, it will never, it will never end. I'll drown in it, and it's bottomless and will never lift. But notice that that's just a belief. And so to have the courage to open and let that feeling come through, feel it in the, the body, sometimes there's a heaviness, just a kind of weightiness, maybe in the chest, feel the mood of sadness, notice the thoughts. And the storyline for me in sadness is something like, I can't be happy because I've lost that, that thing that it's focused on. And if we believe in that, we don't allow ourselves even a moment of opening to real happiness. You know, happiness could, could be a possibility of just an opening in this moment to a delight or joy. But if we believe in the storyline of sadness, we can't find that willingness. We can't find that openness even for a moment. So most grief has its own timeline. If we open and let ourselves feel, not resist, it will move through us, often moves in waves, comes and at some time will pass. So we need to trust in that in order to allow the sadness to have its movement. One of the particular meditator's uh, hindrances that I just wanted to touch on briefly is the quality of doubt. And in this sense, it's skeptical doubt, particularly about the activity that we're engaged in here. So you'll notice this when often the question will come up, often early in the retreat, what on earth am I doing here? And we can't seem to connect with why we came. And we can't make any sense out of the instructions that are being given. And the question arises, well, what does sitting on my butt and following my breath have to do with happiness for myself or anybody else? And none of it makes any sense. And then we often fall into a questioning of the teachings, the practice, the teachers, ourselves, or all of the above. So when doubt comes, if it isn't seen clearly, it's in a way the most um, paralyzing of all the hindrances because the uncertainty, the indecision uh, stops us in our tracks. It keeps us from taking a single step forward. We can't make a commitment to anything. So it's like we've come to a crossroads. Should I go right? Should I go left? Should I go straight ahead? And we can't move in any direction because there's not enough determination to take that step. So we just stand at the crossroads and kind of dither 
if we dither with the meditation, that we sort of don't give ourselves a chance to carry out this experiment. Someone in an interview this morning said something interesting. I said, this is like um, an experiment where we're the scientists, but we're also the laboratory. You know, and that's really quite, quite accurate. This mind-body investigation is an experiment. And there's a certain formula that we suggest that you follow to carry out the experiment. And we suggest if you do, these are the results that will happen. But it's like you get at the doorway of the experiment and you don't mix the chemicals. And then you go off at the end of the week and you say, well, nothing happened. I guess this stuff doesn't work or it wasn't the right thing for me. So if doubt is there, it can really just completely block our ability to open and progress in the meditation practice. Once we recognize it, we can see its kind of paralyzing nature and we can just take that determination, I'm just going to follow, I'm just going to do it, then I'll check after. So the last of the qualities of mind I wanted to touch on tonight is the quality of fear. Fear is something that was a really strong presence in my practice in my early years. It was my main kind of hindering energy. And I had to spend a lot of time coming into it, touching it again and again and again. One of the first things I saw is that when fear arose, I was afraid of it. So that tended to multiply it. So as fear arose, I'd get more scared. And as that got bigger, I'd get more scared. And it would be sort of this spiral. And I didn't know how to, uh, how to work in that situation. So it was very helpful for me was learning to come into the body first and foremost. When fear arose, I would always bring my attention directly into the body and just feel whatever sensations were there. So it might be a contraction in the belly. It might be a kind of fluttery, light feeling through the chest. There might be sweat under the arms. And I would just direct all my attention, all that I could muster, to just being with those body sensations. And I would ask myself, can I open and feel these? Can I allow these to be present? And I found that after contact, after contact, after contact, I could. I found that they were bearable. Because as I investigated the sort of storyline of fear, it was something like, this moment is bearable, but something really awful is going to happen in the next. So if I could come back into this moment and bear it, that sort of undercut the fear. So that's where I directed my energy. Can I open and bear the manifestation in this moment? So first I kind of got comfortable or familiar with the body sensations. They didn't get pleasant, but I could bear them. Then I looked at the state of the mind. And in the mind, the tone of fear is just something like wanting to get away, wanting to move away, wanting to flee, you know, not wanting to, to feel. So I tried to bring openness to that too. So generally, little by little, I would just bring more and more acceptance to the body, to the mind, understanding the story of the fear, and it got more and more workable. But I still really didn't like it. And this is after many, many encounters. And finally, one day, I was sitting with the fear, and I was noting I still had a resistance to it, even after working to to bear it so many times. And I said, okay, if I was really going to be accepting of this, could I be okay if this stayed like this for the rest of my life? That to me was a sign of true acceptance. Could I be okay with this for the rest of my life? And the answer was no. (laughs) Are you kidding? No way. Okay, so I didn't stop there. So I investigated, well, why? Why couldn't I accept this, being here for the rest of my life? And what came into my mind were images of things that I had uh, kind of enjoyed intensely in, in life up to that point. 
I would think of times when I would be listening to a piece of music and I would be so involved in it that I'd just be, you know, in a rapture of delight and, and strong emotions that the music unlocked. Or it would be watching a sunset somewhere really beautiful in nature when I was completely open and I could have a sense of just merging with um, the sky and the earth and that sense of oneness and, and deep connection. And I thought, you know, I'd have to give these things up if I was going to be fearful. So then I sat with that for a moment. And I thought, okay, so you're going to resist it now on the off chance that one of these things might, you know, come along later. And I realized I was giving up my present equanimity and peace of mind in the hope of some future getting high. And then I just realized that wasn't a good trade. And so I opened to the possibility that I could be with this state the rest of my life and that I could be okay with that. And when I did that, the fear lost some deep hold on me. That degree of openness to it broke something in the grip that fear had had over me. And I went through a period of practice where I was completely equanimous to fears arising or not arising. If it came, that was fine. If it didn't come, that was also fine. I truly had no preference. Now, since then, fear has come back, you know, a number of times, visits, you know, from time to time. But I feel I have the way to understand it and relate with it. And it doesn't throw me off balance these days. Of course, I haven't faced a lot of difficult life situations yet, so I'm not making claims about the future. But it's become much, much, much more workable. So with all these difficult energies that come, we have the potential to bring that same level of equanimity and acceptance into anything that visits us. Your particular main one may be sadness, or it may be desire, or it may be self-judgment, or it may be fear or anger. But the capacity is there for each of us to develop this complete equanimity in relation to these states so that they really don't obstruct us or obscure us any longer. And as we do that, we find that we start to uh, clear out a lot of space in the mind of areas that were formerly problematic. Experiences in life that we couldn't accept are felt as a threat or a problem in life. They aren't intrinsically problematic. But if we avoid them, then there's a problematic relationship that leads to suffering. As we can open to them, a lot of those problem areas just go out. And difficult emotions are one of the most challenging areas of life. So those problems, one by one, as we understand and as we open, start to go out of life. And we start to get this great confidence that we can relate to whatever life throws at us because we've learned to relate with some of the most difficult aspects of our hearts and minds. So I'd just like to uh, close tonight with this quote from the Tibetan tradition. This is called The Blessings of Gampopa, who was a disciple of the famous uh, Tibetan yogi Milarepa. It's it's, uh, presented as a kind of prayer or supplication, but you can think of it as to uh, anyone you like. It could be to a guru, it could be to a deity, it could be to a higher power, it could be to your own inner wisdom. So understand it in any way that that makes sense to you. The Four Blessings of Gampopa. Grant your blessing so that my mind follows the Dharma. Grant your blessing so that my Dharma practice becomes the path. Grant your blessing so that the path clarifies confusion. Grant your blessing so that confusion dawns as wisdom. Let's just sit for a minute, please.
Grant your blessings so that the path clarifies confusion. Grant your blessings so that confusion dawns as wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.